We will be today in the, uh, new, in the Old Testament prophet, minor prophet of Nahum. And so uh, I would encourage you to get your Bibles out and follow along with us today. If you need a Bible, uh, will you raise your hand? Uh, we've got some in the back. We're happy to put one in your hand. Blue shirts, would you just look around for that? If somebody raise your hand, we'll bring you one right now. Raise your hand, wave it in the air. Wave it like you just don't care. All right. Uh, hopefully you have one with you that you can follow along uh, with us today for sure. So Nahum is where we'll be. Uh, and the first verse says this very thing, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Uh, so a little bit of background as we get into this minor prophet uh, today. Uh, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. So it was the center. It was where it all happened when it came to uh, the Assyrians. And, and so um, for many years, the record of, of Assyria had been so obliterated that many Bible scholars, and I would say kind of liberal-leaning Bible scholars, would say, hey, you know what? I'm not even sure that this is a real place. I'm not even sure that this was actually a real uh, story. Um, and honestly, critics on that particular side would uh, are always trying to disprove the Bible, find something that, hey, the Bible is not really true, or this reference that they had there is actually not really true. Uh, uh, however, uh, the, uh, the ruins of Nineveh uh, were actually discovered, and it proved all these skeptics wrong. Uh, and, and honestly, the, uh, the, the discoveries that they made proved that, that Nineveh was true, that the Bible can be trusted. It's just more of those confirmations to say, hey, you know what? We can read things like this. We can read prophets and we can find out that it actually was a place and these actually were a people. It's a, uh, and so Nineveh was a huge city. It, it was uh, key and central uh, to this story that we're going to be telling today. Uh, now, Nahum it itself is uh, really the only time that you'll see this particular prophet. And so outside of this, we don't get much more in the stories about what happened in this text today. But uh, listening to his writing and reading some of the things, it's pretty evident that uh, uh, he lived around the time of Micah, which we just preached through, uh, also somewhat during the time of Isaiah. So if you're reading through the major prophet of Isaiah, uh, and, and Isaiah's story, you'll know that, that all that was kind of happening around the same time. And so uh, this writing occurred sometime around 713 BC as Hezekiah reigned over Jerusalem. So that gives you some kind of context if you are a Bible scholar and think about through those timelines, that'll give you an idea. So Elkosh was a small city around the Sea of Galilee. And most scholars believe that Nahum came uh, from Galilee. And Jesus, we know, spent most of his ministry in and around the Sea of Galilee and around Capernaum. And actually, Capernaum means the town of Nahum. So there you go. That's all the history that I've got and enough of that. So we'll keep moving on. That gives you some what a context around what Nahum is. Now, as I was reading through this as a bit of uh, confession, as I've talked to some of my other pastoral brethren, uh, Nahum is not a book that I've ever spent a whole lot of time in. And I think that Nahum was one of those in your Bible reading plan that you just power through, uh, that you go, okay, this is minor prophets. I'm not really sure what he's saying here. So I'm just going to power through. So as I was studying for this, I'm like, 
I don't know if I've ever heard this before. Uh, and, and so it's been good for me to study through this even much more at an in-depth place uh, than necessarily just trying to read through and power through. So that's my own confession, and I won't ask you for your confession today. So what is the message of Nahum? That's the big question. What is, what is this minor prophet uh, writing about? And honestly, it's about God's judgment that's going to come against Nineveh and against the Assyrian Empire. That, that's what the prophet is actually writing about. As a matter of fact, over a hundred years earlier, another minor prophet had been called to Nineveh. And do we know who that was? Yeah, Jonah. Jonah, yeah, he was, a, he was the, a minor prophet that Pastor Paul preached through whenever we uh, got early on in our, uh, in our text that we were preaching through. Uh, and so I, I appreciated what uh, Pastor Paul did. He said he got the easy one uh, because it was Jonah. And we, most of us know that story of that particular minor prophet. And so this uh, happened in the same city that uh, Jonah had been called to. Remember that story that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? And honestly, as I read more about Nineveh, I, I kind of understand it. That was a jacked up place. There was a lot of really debauchery going on there. It was a dangerous place to live. And Jonah was like, you know, and honestly, as I read through Jonah, I was like, why does he not want to go? Why is he being so rebellious. And honestly, now that I'm in Nahum, I kind of get it. I'm like, I don't think I'd want to go there either, especially after dark, you know, it's like sketchy and all that stuff. So, uh, but, but uh, Jonah did not want to go there. Uh, but when he went there and he preached the gospel, what happened? Yeah, they repented. They were like, oh my goodness. And so many people. And, and if we remember correctly, uh, he wasn't even happy about it. He was like, yeah, that's great. I'm out. You know, I, I, I'm done with these people and I'm moving on. Um, uh, so, and so we hear though that God, uh, when the word was declared, people did respond. The city was spared of God's wrath, spared for probably another 150 years or so. But now God is telling the prophet Nahum that, Hey, you know what? It has, the city has become so wicked now that I'm actually gonna, I'm actually gonna destroy uh, the city. And honestly, this will be a really crushing blow uh, to Nineveh. Nineveh and Assyria will fall and never to rise again. You'll never see anything about Nineveh. You'll never, you'll never know anything about specifically Assyria again. And honestly, that does happen in 612 BC is when all that actually went down. And so here's how the story starts. Look with me in verse two, if you will. Uh, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. So Zechariah reminds us of this same thing. He reminds us that the Lord is an avenging God. That, and then in one of the first of the Ten Commandments, we know this, that you shall have no other gods before me. God is that way. He's like, don't put anybody else in front of me. There shouldn't be anything more important to you than I am. And, and so God, uh, the Lord is jealous and avenging God. And that's what Nahum tells us in verse 2. But what does this statement actually really mean? What, what does it mean to say that God is a jealous God? And so in understanding the art and science of biblical interpretation, it's imperative that we remember that we can really only understand who God is by using our own human terminology. So we, we can't really ascribe words to God that would that would specifically describe him or really adequately even describe who he is because we are so limited in our vocabulary. We're limited in our really even full understanding of who God is. And so we can't really understand him fully. And so we try to use words that best get to what it is and, and who it is that God is actually being described as. 
Jesus told the teacher of the Jews, Nicodemus, over in the New Testament, the same kind of thing. It's in John's gospel. And Jesus said, if I speak to you of earthly things and you cannot understand them, how could I ever speak to you of heavenly things? He's like, look, I I try to tell you things that are going on just here that you see and you understand with your finite mind. How in the world, and you have trouble with those. How in the world am I going to speak with you of heavenly things, things that you've never seen, things that you can't understand? You just won't comprehend those kind of things. So how can we, finite people, understand the vastness of God? Like how big he actually really is. Or how do we really understand the character of God? I mean, we know people that, ha- that are of high character, right? You know some people like that. You may be one of those people that is of really high character. But can that even compare to the character of God? What about the greatness of God? The one who spoke and the world's literally leaped into existence. The greatness of God. The one who can declare your sins forgiven. And declare you right with himself. These are human words that we get to use. And they fall short in describing actually who God is. So we've got to use these human terms though to try to describe and understand who God is and what he's doing in a particular situation. So this says that the Lord is jealous. Now, jealousy is a human term. We kind of understand jealousy, right? Right? Am I the only one? Okay. Yeah, okay. That's a couple. Appreciate you boys in the back. Uh, we understand jealousy, but in describing God, it's not in the same way that we understand jealousy. What, when we ascribe that God is a jealous God, what, he's, what, what the scripture is trying to say and what any theologian is trying to say is that God does not want your affection to be going to anything else, any other idol, any other God, or any other ideal. That's what it means when we say God is a jealous God. He doesn't want to share that with anybody or anything else or anything else that might come into that most uh, premier or pristine or the top place for your affection. Here's what we also know. All of us have a God. All of us have a God. Even if you're here and you say, I don't believe in God, preacher. You still have a God. We all have something. Whatever governs your life is your God. Whatever governs, governs your life, whatever, whatever you follow, whatever you give your time and attention to, whatever you give your treasure to, whatever, whatever is, is the default that gets your energy, that's what, that becomes your God. What is it in your life? What are the things or the persons that always win the battle for your time? Whatever governs your passion has become your God. But the the God of the Bible does not want any other master passion governing your life. He wants to be the great passion of your life. And if you let anything else get into that place, God, the true and living God, really is displeased over the fact that you've allowed something else. You've put something else in that place. And the Lord, uh, the displeasure 
is described in our human terms as God's jealousy. That's what we say when we need, when we say that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. That's what it's describing, and that's how it's ascribing this uh, to God. Now, again, don't try to think of God in, a, in human terms. Uh, jealousy uh, in human terms means that there's some selfishness behind it, or maybe our turf is being threatened or something like that. Because the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 that jealousy is uh, uh, one of the works of the flesh. And we certainly wouldn't ascribe that to God. So we can't use a human term and a human understanding of jealousy whenever the scriptures say that God is a jealous and avenging God. But God is jealous because of his great love for you. Because of the means and the ends that he is willing to go to to, to give you the love that he has for you. He is, a, he is a jealous God. But he's not only jealous, in verse 2, look what it says. He's also an avenging God. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. So God does take vengeance. He declared, God says this, vengeance is mine. I will be the one who repays. And so there's a day of judgment that is coming. You can't, let me tell you this, church. And, you, and some of you need to hear, we all need to hear this, but some of you specifically right now need to hear what I'm about to say. You can't continue to sin and sin and sin and immerse yourself in sin and, and find pleasure in sin and continue on in sin without facing some type of retribution from the Lord. And you say, well, preacher, I mean, didn't Jesus take the wrath of all our sin? Yes, he did. But as children of his, we can't continue to live in a rebellious state against the God who has rescued us without facing some type of retribution. You're like, well, I'm not sure I believe that, preacher. Well, whether you believe it or not, the scriptures are very clear about that. We can't continue to in, in our sin and continue to wallow in our sin and just stay there without any thoughts or without any repentance, without any sorrow over our sin and expect that we just continue to roll on down the road. God doesn't always bring judgment quickly, but judgment will come. We can even see that in our text today. And for those specifically who are unwilling to turn from their sin, to find repentance and salvation in, uh, in the Lord Jesus, God will bring vengeance upon you because of your sin if you're unwilling to turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in the only one who can forgive your sin, and that's Jesus. Now, in this text in Nahum, he's describing God's attitude toward this wicked city of Nineveh that is filled with occult practices. Uh, it, it's crazy how sinful uh, that Nineveh actually was. Inhumane, cruel people. I mean, it's really amazing how just bad that Nineveh was. Verse 2 continues on, and it says, The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Now, Hebrews reminds us that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, and so some of you may say, well, I mean, preacher, God is love, right? So how can you say that it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God? Well, God is love. God, God does love us. God is uh, uh, love. That is one of the words used to describe God. No really anything else in the universe, nothing really in the universe can compare that with the love of God that he has for his people. I too have a loving nature. 
Like I, I, I love to love people. I'm a big hugger. You know, I, I love, if I see you, I'm going to teach you to front hug and, and uh, I'm not going to side, do this old side hug garbage. Uh, uh, I'm going to hug your neck if I'm going to hug you. And, and, and but I, I love to love people. Um, uh, I, I love to, I love my wife. I love my kids. Um, but even in my love for them, there's another side that can be stirred up. You know what I'm saying? There's another side. There's vengeance in my side uh, that can be stirred up. Where are the Benjamin children? Raise your hands. I said raise your hands. No, <laughs> um. We can get stirred up over the same things. Think about this. I mean, if something threatens my wife, again, I'm, I'm a loving person. I'm not coming to hug you. You know what I'm saying? If something is threatening my children, some situation, some decisions, some uh, uh, lifestyles or whatever that my, my kids may, that influences that may come at my children, you, you know what this guy's doing? I'm putting the kibosh on that. Why? Because I love my children. I love my children. And I'm going to protect my children, whether they understand it or not. Sorry, this is a mini sermon for them. Uh, whether they understand it or not, uh, I'm coming as protector to go, I'm protecting you from things you can't even see or understand. You know what I'm saying? And so God... And this is a microcosm of how God operates in the same way. He loves us dearly, but he also is a vengeful and a wrathful God. And come at his people, guess what? He's coming, bro. You know, you, see, you tracking with me? So we all get that way. Whether or not you, you are that way about your children, maybe you don't have children. And, and so you may be, say, well, give me something else, uh, Pastor. I mean, think about the, what our city has endured even over the last few months. Think, I'll give you a name. Think Eliza Fletcher. What does that stir up in you? I mean, for me, my first one is anger. And, it's, and then there's sorrow and grief and anguish. But my first response when I hear Eliza Fletcher's name is anger. That she had to endure what she had to endure. And my anger wells up within me toward those who would egregiously harm Eliza Fletcher. And so, in the same way, we can begin to understand that, that love is not weak. God is not weak. And we serve a God who is holy and righteous, and he is one who will bring judgment against sin and against those who sin against his people. That's what we're seeing here in Nahum. So let's get to, uh, I hope you got your Bibles open, Nahum chapter 1. Let's read verses 3 through 6. The Lord is slow to anger and, and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way, is, his way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hill heals, the hills melt, the earth 
heaves before him the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. By him. And so that's just a little glimpse of look what God can do and look what God actually does sometimes in those situations. His greatness, his power is on display here in just those verses that we read. And then immediately Nahum writes in verse 7 that the Lord is good. Look, that, that's the first thing he says. The Lord is good. He can do all these things and he can bring destruction and it can get real bad really quick. And then he says, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. Say that with me. The Lord is good. Say it like, say it like Nacho Libre. The Lord is good. He's good. And if you don't hear anything else or you don't remember anything else that I say today, I want you to remember that the Lord is good. Some of you who are skeptical about God, some of you who are uh, God haters that have you know, been drugged here today or that you may be watching online, you go, I don't know about this God person. Let me tell you, the Lord is good. He is good despite what you may think about him. You don't know the God of the Bible if you think he's bad. You go, you don't know my circumstances, Pastor. You're right, I don't. But here's what I do know. I can read from the text and I can understand my own circumstances and people that I've loved circumstances and see that even in difficulty that the Lord is good. My circumstances may not reveal it at the present moment. And I get that. This church gets that. That in some type of present moments, it doesn't seem like anything is good. Right, church? It can seem like nothing is good. And God can't be good because of the circumstance I find myself in right now. Our enemy is the one that continues to accuse God and continues to whisper that in our ear, even in the, especially in the middle of bad times, that God can't be good if he's allowing this thing to happen, which makes us say, well, if God is good, why is this happening to me? Or why is this happening to my friends? Why is this happening to my family? Why does God allow egregious sin and egregious sinful things to happen to people if he's good? And because there are egregious things that happen, because there are difficult things that happen, and because there are sinful things that happen to each of us, we have to be grounded. Listen, church, we have to be grounded in the fact that God is good. We can't let that thought get out of our mind because the, 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 the tough stuff is coming. Hard things are coming. Difficult times are coming. If you haven't been in them yet, they will come. I, I promise you they will come. The scriptures tell us that. There's lots of preachers today that'll tell you that if you follow Jesus and you're living right with him, then no bad things are going to come to you. Hogwash. That's garbage preaching. Okay? And if you listen to any of those cats, I've listed them before, turn them off because they're leading you astray as well. Soapbox, done. And so you and I must be grounded in the fact that the Lord is good. Say that with me. The Lord is good. And so most of our problems that we encounter are, and, the, and sometimes the attitudes that we have is because we have a short-term view and a, and a limited view of who God is. We can only see him in the particular moment that we find ourselves. And we limit our view of who he actually is. 
Romans chapter 8, 28 says, it's in the New Testament, and it says, and all things work together for good for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. And so he says, how many things? All things work what? Together for what? Bad. For harm. For difficulties. No, all things work together for good for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. And so the scriptures reiterate that God is good. But not only is he good, the Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. Look there in verse 7. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And I'm like, what's a good example of a stronghold? And I think one that really describes it in this is like an anchor. Okay? And so think about an anchor. And so think if we had an anchor that kind of wrapped itself around the edge of this and you pull, if the the wind's blowing and and I've got my anchor in and the chain tightens, then that's going to hold the boat in place even in the middle of a storm. You know what I'm saying? Most of you've been on the lake or some type of water on a boat before and that's how all that works. So he's like an anchor. And, and so even in the thinking of, uh, of God being a stronghold or an anchor in the time of trouble, that doesn't mean that you're not going to see trouble. We just talked about that. That's just a part of life itself. Jesus told us this. He says, in this life, you will have trouble or tribulation, but take heart. What? I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. So take heart even in the middle of your trouble. The Lord is a stronghold. He's an anchor, a very present help in the day of trouble. So I'll ask you a question. If you are someone who is outside the household of faith today, someone who is not a follower of Jesus today, someone who is not a Christian today, where do you run in times of trouble? What's it like for you in a time of trouble? Where is it that you have peace? Where is it you find peace? Where is it that you find hope in the time of trouble? For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, he is our refuge and strength. He is the one we run to in our times of distress, in our day of trouble. Nahum goes on in that same verse and says, he knows those who take refuge in him. How cool is that? That God knows me. And God knows you. Anyone go to the beach this summer or fall break? Who who went to the beach at some point? Come on, I know more of y'all went than that. Raise your hands up in the air. Doesn't mean you're charismatic. Just raise your hand. (laughs) Uh, Remember how much sand there was on the beach? How much sand was there? A lot of sand. Too much to quantify, right? I mean, you, you couldn't go out. I, I was thinking that as I was walking back to the house uh, one time uh, on fall break, and I, I was just trudging, you know, at the end of the day uh, through the sand and dragging my feet and the wagon and whatever else we had with us. And I was just thinking about the sand. And I'm like, if I picked up like two handfuls of sand, how, ma- how many grains of sand do you think would be in like two handfuls of sand? Yeah, I don't even know. A lot. I didn't count them. Okay. But it's a bunch of them. And so just think about all the grains of sand in uh, Destin. That's where we were. It's a lot of sand. Now think about all the grains of sand like on every beach everywhere in the world. 
That's a lot, right? David said that, that God's thoughts about him, and, and I would say even us, he said this, if I would count them, they are more than the sand. They're more than the sand. I, I mean, I feel like I would be satisfied with like two handfuls of thoughts from the Lord. You know, two handfuls of sand thoughts from the Lord. That's a lot of, that's a lot of thoughts, you know. But he says it's more than all the sand. That's how God thinks, and that's, and that's the thoughts that God has towards his people, towards me and you. Here's, here's what I'm trying to get to. Listen, God knows your situation. Right now, whatever the situation is that you're in, God knows your situation. God knows the trials that you are right smack in the middle of. God knows the problems that you face. Take heart, Christian. God knows you. He knows you. He thinks about you. And that's good news that Nahum was, was even conveying to the people, even in the midst of the calamity that was to come. Now let's get back uh, to the text and see what it says. Look, look with me in verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. That's what I'm talking about. And he will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against, uh, what do you plot against the Lord? <laughs> that's, you see what he's saying there? He's like, how do you plan against God? I mean, I've got a strategy and all, but uh, you know, you're going to bring your paltry strategy against the Lord. That's, that's what he's saying here. He will make a complete end. He's like, he will squash your strategy like a, a little cockroach. Uh, your strategy is useless. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Like, you're not going to come back from this. For they are like uh, entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one. Uh, from you came a one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Oh, that's, that's one verse too many. Uh, and so we'll stop right there. And so he said, "There's going to come some trouble. We're all going to see trouble uh, in this life." And he said, you're going to see it here uh, in, in your city as well because the Assyrians are coming and they're going to encircle the city. But he said, I'm going to take, I'm going to take vengeance on the Assyrians somewhere along the way. And so what we know from Scripture, from reading about this particular story, uh, the Medes and the Babylonians came against Nineveh. And on three occasions, Nineveh just wiped them out. Like they came, they couldn't get in through the, the walls. And, and so uh, they were like little peas and they were, sorry, that's my veggie tales. Uh, uh, who are you little peas? Uh, uh, they were like little peas that got squashed. And, and so three different times they came against them and they were, there was not, they were not successful at all. Um, and so every time they would, would regroup and they'd come back again and again. And so after the third time, uh, the, the people in Nineveh, uh, the soldiers decided that they would uh, celebrate the fact that they had, they had won three different sieges that came against them. And so we learned from the scriptures, we learned from other things uh, that they decided to tie one on. So they got all the whiskey in the town and all the booze in the town, and it said they tied on one drunken, uh, uh, one drunken night. It says orgies were a part of the whole thing, that they had just gotten drunken sex times. Uh, they, had, they were all like arm in arm uh, uh, singing Jesse's Girl, you know. I mean, it was just 
one of those, uh, one of those crazy nights that they were, were going. And while all this debauchery was going on, the Medes and the Babylonians were regrouping. And so they were like, okay, we've got another plan. And so we're going to regroup. And they, and, they, and they attacked them again and literally caught them with their pants down uh, and, and, and wiped them out. I mean, it was, it was just one of those times that they were like, uh, they're coming in and they were not prepared. And, and it was kind of a bloodbath. And so as chapter one closes, uh, the Lord says the Assyrians will never come again. Uh, they've been utterly cut off. And, and this day they still are. And so you think, well, how did that all happen? Well, I'm glad you asked. So chapter two, when you get into chapter two here, it's really about the future destruction of Nineveh, about what's really coming and how it's coming along. And it appears that uh, uh, to kind of get in on this, uh, that the way they found their uh, inroads was, is that uh, even while they were attacking and couldn't get in, that there came this really de- deluge of water and it actually washed away part of the wall. And there was an entryway in in, uh, that, and I would say that God made an entryway in for the armies to come in and actually bring all this devastation. Verse eight of chapter two says, Nineveh is like a pool whose waters have run away. Nineveh is being destroyed. And so then we get to chapter three and look with me in the first seven verses of chapter three. This is what, um, this is what Nahum writes. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, to end, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and, and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And for all the countless whorings of the prostitute, grace, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from before you and say, wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Okay, how about that for some descriptive language? You can kind of think through that yourself. I won't get into that, but that's some pretty descriptive language about what was coming for Nineveh at the time. So again, Nineveh was this great city in the time of Jonah uh, and and obviously in the time of Nahum. uh, 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 Some uh, commentators said it's like a three-day walk from one side of Nineveh to the other. There was talk of there being like 6,000 very young babies at the time. And so the total population of Nineveh was probably close to a million people. Almost like the population of the greater Memphis area right now. So it's an extremely large city, yet the judgment of the Lord was to come. uh, And Nahum... uh, uh, and, and Nahum had, had told us this, and he said, it's come, and your city is going to be laid to waste. Now, now, look what all he says. Let's keep going in verse 8. He says, are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart of sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. 
You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. And he goes on to say this in 14. Draw water for the seed. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will, be the fire, there will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply the grasshopper. Your increase, uh, you increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads out its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts setting on the fences in the day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. And then God in his final declaration says in uh, verse 19, he says, there is no easing your hurt. You will, uh, your world is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Like, what does that mean, preacher? Well, Assyria was one of the cruelest empires in history. They were sadists. They, they desired pleasure. They, especially sexual gratification. They longed for sexual gratification. And they, and they got a lot of their gratification from inflicting pain on other people. They maimed and they tortured their captives. Sometimes they would even pull the tongues out of people's mouths. They were so vicious and vile. They would gorge out the eyes of the prisoners that they would have. And they were doing this to strike fear into those around them. That was the Assyrians. And it worked because the world at that time was really fearful about Assyria. So when the news of this utter destruction came that we see and we read about in uh, chapter 3, when it, the utter destruction of Nineveh and the destruction of the Assyrians hit the news racks of the day, people would have rejoiced. I mean, they would have been like, yes, Syria is, Syria is gone. Syria is over. Syria has been plundered. And Syria is being burned to the ground. They would have leapt for joy. There would be no grieving over Assyria. There would be no grieving over Nineveh because of their great wickedness. And so what do we do with that today? I mean, what do we learn from Nahum? And, and, and honestly, some type of encrypted language as you read it. What do we do with it today? Well, after allowing 200 or so years of these Assyrian kings and these Assyrian rulers, God told Nahum, he said, I've got plans to judge Nineveh. And again, the book clearly shows that of God's grievous concern over sin, God hates sin. And it shows his willingness to punish those who are guilty of wickedness. And his power that he has to carry out his judgment in his timing whenever he says it's time for this to be judged. At the same time, it's also a glimpse of a light shining through the darkness. How do you say that, preacher? I didn't hear a lot of that in chapter 3. Well, part of it is that Judah, the tribe of Judah, who was captured here in Nahum, would have taken great hope in the idea that Nineveh and the people of Nineveh specifically, their great oppressor for generations, would soon come under judgment from God. 
So they were taking a little bit of hope that God is actually going to avenge uh, and bring his vengeance against our oppressors. And to see and experience the slowness of God's anger, even toward an increasingly idolatrous uh, group of people that actually belong to God. And so, again, what do we do with this? Well, here's what we know. Uh, when we think back to Jonah and all the people that came to know the Lord during that time, I'm sure there was this time of spiritual high, right? So people had come to know the Lord, and, and that was a good thing, even though Jonah was not very happy about it. No doubt whenever so many people turn from their wicked ways and turn to the Lord, there's this high almost of like, oh my goodness, we're on this spiritual high, and, and God's done a great work, and God has rescued many people. But over the next period of time that we can kind of deduct from this entire thing, probably a couple of generations following God in the, in the mundane, and unfortunately, following him in the mundane when there's so many pressures and so much evil around and so many different influences on who we are can almost become non-existent. I mean, some of you walk in that today. Some of you walk in a place where you became a Christian, you uh, uh, said a prayer, maybe, maybe you were baptized and, and you were on fire for the Lord at one time. And just over time and pressures and society and, and social media influences or whatever the thing is, maybe it's a tragedy that happened in your own life and, and you're just angry with the Lord or whatever the thing is, over time that may have waned. What we say around here is following Jesus um, is kind of the long, straight path in the same direction. It's not always some mountaintop experience. It's not always uh, puppies and cotton candy. It's not always something that's full of joy. There are difficulties that come as a follower of Jesus. And unfortunately, when those times come, almost as whenever uh, Assyria had brought siege upon the people of God... When those time comes, we take our eyes off Jesus and the marvelous works that many of us have experienced and fall back into other influences. Other influences affect our choices. Choices affect our behavior. And behavior can slip into sin. And sin can get its grip on us until we no longer look like the people of God. How kind it was for God to send Jonah to Nineveh. Would you agree with that? A super kindness that, that God would take a, an unwilling participant and go, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach and see people come to know the Lord. And how kind of God to send Nahum to the remnant of God's people there to give them hope even under their oppressors to say that judgment is coming for this city. I know you've had to sit under this for a long time, but the Lord is about to avenge against this oppression that you have been a part of. And just like God was long-suffering and patient in the days of Jonah and in the days of Nahum, he is today too. That's the good news. That he is long-suffering and he is patient 
even today. God sent them to the city. God sent Jonah and God sent Nahum to the people then. Jonah urging them to repent. Nahum warning, uh, warning them that destruction was coming. And God has sent me to you today. God has sent this preacher with this message from Nahum for specifically some of you that need to hear this today. My urging for you to repent of your sins, to turn from your wicked ways. To not stay in that pathway that you've stayed in for so long, just waiting on the wrath of God to come your way. He sent me to urge you to repent, to turn from that, to not let utter destruction come your way. Do it before it's too late. Warning you that God is not patient forever. He's not patient Forever, for you to just continue on immersing yourself deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in your sin. Here's what the scripture tells us, that it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Christian theology tells us that there, there's not a second chance after we pass on from this life to the next. There's not another chance. There's not a place for people to pray us out of a, a place. This is the opportunity. And judgment is coming for specifically for those who are outside the household of faith. God is still grievous and concerned over sin. He still has a willingness to punish the wicked and the guilty. And still has the power to carry out his judgment. And the wrath of God may just fall on you just like it did in Nahum's time. Or that wrath on your behalf has been absorbed by Jesus. That's the two options. Either you will face the wrath of God and the utter destruction. That, I think that's part of why Nahum was written. To say that evil will not continue without some type of punishment. And so even for you and me, that comes in, in, in facing the wrath of God for eternity or that Jesus faced the wrath of God on our behalf and we get the benefits from the goodness of God for all eternity. Those are the two options. The Assyrians chose the wrong way. I urge you today to not do the same. Instead, I urge you to repent of your sins. Follow Jesus. Trust in his sinless life, his death on your behalf, and the fact that God raised him from the dead, and he is alive forevermore, interceding for those that belong to him at the right hand of the Father. He can and he will do that for you today. Let me pray for us.